Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The Dow Jones started off the final day of the week with a pretty strong rally. We were up a little better than 200 points earlier in the day. Then we got some weaker than expected economic data, which I will get to a bit later. Uh, the market sold off. The Dow never quite went negative. I think it got maybe even up single digits. I wasn't sure. I didn't watch it that closely. But then we rallied back and the Dow managed to end the week back above the 26,000 mark with a 110-point gain. In fact, all of the major indices were positive on the day. And what caused the early morning rally was optimism once again that a trade deal with China is about to be signed. And, you know, it's kind of amazing how often the, the markets can bite on this and keep rallying on regurgitated news because we've heard this before. And as I've said on this podcast before, we're going to get a trade deal. I mean, a trade deal with China is inevitable. And the only positive about the trade deal is going to be that it takes the prospect of a self-inflicted wound off the table. I mean, that's the only good thing is that if we have a trade deal, then Trump is not going to increase tariffs on American businesses and on American consumers. I mean, that is the empty threat that is out there is that, hey, we're going to we're going to force China to the negotiating table, because if they don't, we're going to erect these tariffs, which, according to Trump, the Chinese are going to pay. But according to economics, Americans are going to pay. And that's one of the reasons that we can't afford to actually use this weapon that we are threatening the Chinese with. In fact, one of the reasons that you had all this optimism about this new deal was uh, Larry Kudlow was out talking about the new deal and how great it's going to be. I mean, how this is going to be a huge win for America. It's a fantastic deal. It's a boom. It's better than we could have expected. It, it, it is all encompassing. I mean, he has really raised expectations. I mean, doesn't Cudlow know anything about the expectation game? I mean, the idea is to under-promise so you can over-deliver. It seems like we're destined for failure here because everybody in the Trump administration is promising the moon. There is no way that they're going to deliver a trade deal that actually lives up to the expectations that it's going to be fantastic. In fact, because Trump and his administration have been so positive on how we're going to have such a great deal that basically Trump has lost whatever bargaining uh, leverage he thought he might have had because he could have walked away from the deal. You know, because once you've raised the expectations of a great deal, and then if you walk away with nothing and the market has been rallying and rallying based on the rumor of this great trade deal, and then you deliver nothing, 
I mean, not only is it going to be a buy the rumor, sell the fact, it's going to be, you know, sell panic because there is no fact because the rumor was false. And so then it's even worse. You're going to have an even bigger drop. So Trump has now backed himself into a quarter where he needs a deal, any deal, right, just to have one. But now, of course, it's not just any deal. They have already pre-sold how great this deal is going to be, how it's going to be such a huge boom for U.S. exports and for the U.S. economy, it's impossible to deliver. In fact, one of the other things that Larry Kudlow was saying on this interview, and again, this just you know uh, confirms another uh, forecast that I made on this program from day one. Remember when Donald Trump first announced that he was appointing Larry Kudlow as his economic advisor, I remember there was a lot of talk about how this is good news because Cudlow was a free trader and he's going to get to Washington and he's going to, you know, educate Trump on why tariffs are bad and, you know, why free trade is good. And it's going to be he's going to be a positive influence on Trump. That's what everybody was saying, except for me. I said the opposite. I said what's going to happen is Trump is going to turn Kudlow into his mouthpiece, that what he was doing by bringing Trump into his administration, he was uh, following the adage of keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Since Kudlow was becoming an enemy because he was talking about free trade, not protectionism and tariffs, by bringing Kudlow into his administration, he kept his enemy close But I knew that Kudlow was such a team player, right, such a cheerleader for Republican administrations that if he was such a big cheerleader on the outside, that he would obviously be an even bigger cheerleader on the inside. And I said it was Kudlow that was going to change, not Trump. Trump was going to change Kudlow, not the other way around. And that's exactly what happened. And in fact, in his interview, and it was on Fox News, I believe, uh, Kudlow was saying, you know, I learned a lot from President Trump and I learned how important tariffs are, how good tariffs are, how well tariffs can work and do the job. So now the free trader Kudlow, you know, has completely signed on to tariffs and the Trump agenda, which, again, is exactly what I said was going to happen with Larry Kudlow when he was first uh, announced as uh, the uh, economic uh, advisor. But in any event, Kudlow is out there. Everybody is out there promising this great trade deal with China, and it's not going to happen. I mean, we're going to get a deal, again, because the president can't afford not to have a deal. And if we don't have a deal, then he's got to put the tariffs on. And we certainly can't afford to put on tariffs, not with the economy already weakening, which is the case. And let's get to some of the economic data that supports the idea that the economy is weakening. Now, first of all, we got the first look uh, late because of the government shutdown, but we finally got the first look at GDP for the fourth quarter of the year. And the expectation of most analysts was that we were going to get a very soft number. I mean, 1.8 to 2%. I mean, I actually thought we could get something a little softer than that. And I thought that if we got a weak fourth quarter, that that would rain on the Trump 3% GDP growth parade, because that would mean that Trump did not get 3% GDP growth uh, during his second term since he went you know, didn't come anywhere near it in his first term, then he wouldn't be able to brag that he had achieved something that, you know, eluded President Obama for eight years. But so far, if this holds up and it's not revised, 
the government claims the economy grew by 2.6% in the fourth quarter. And that means that in the, the year, the total of 2018, the economy will have grown by 3.1%, which means that I would have been wrong in thinking that Trump would not get 3% for an entire year because he would have eked by it with 3.1% in 2018. Now, I'm not willing to concede that we can, that we beat 3% until we see the revisions. I'd like to see what happens because I a lot of these numbers have a lot of noise now because a lot of the information was compiled during the government shutdown. So it's probably even more inaccurate than the government numbers already are. So let's wait and see what we, uh, what we get as far as the revisions are concerned. But if you look at the first uh, estimate, we had 3.1%. Uh, GDP growth. Now, that is the strongest GDP number since 2005. So you have to go back to uh, the Bush administration to find a number bigger than 3.1%, uh, 3.5. But, you know, to really put it in perspective, right, to, to see what it took to get this number. In 2005, the national debt increased by $554 billion during the year. That's still a pretty big increase in debt, right? The official budget deficit was probably about $300 billion, but I mean, who cares about the official deficit? What really counts is the amount of debt that was added during the year, and the national debt increased by $554 billion. But that extra borrowing, or that $554 billion of borrowing, purchased three and a half percent economic growth. Well, Trump, right, in fiscal 2018, and this is a preliminary number because we don't have the final numbers yet. My guess it's going to end up being bigger. But the national debt in 2018 increased by $1.27 trillion. So more than double the amount of a debt that, it took in 2005 to buy 3.5% growth. We have probably maybe 150% more debt added uh, in 2018, and we only bought 3.1% in economic growth. So we had to add a lot more debt in 2018 to buy not as much growth as a much smaller amount of debt purchased in, in 2005. And so the takeaway from that is this is unsustainable because the growth came at a heavy cost. We had to increase the amount of debt that we had by a lot more than the percentage that the economy grew. So we're not richer as a result of this so-called economic growth, right? If your debt is growing faster than your economy, then you're not getting richer, you're getting poorer. We would have been better off without the debt and without the growth, because, you know, as a country, we would be wealthier had we had no growth in the economy and no growth in the debt. But if we had to borrow a lot more money to buy growth of a, a lesser amount, well, you know, we're, we're borrowing ourselves into poverty. We're not borrowing ourselves rich, right? We're borrowing ourselves broke. And, and that's what happened. But we'll see, uh, ultimately, if we, um, if we get any revisions. But as I've been saying based on some of the numbers that I was looking at, was that any extra growth that came in the fourth quarter of 2018, that extra growth was going to come at the expense 
of the first quarter of 2019, which is where we are now. And the economic data that came out today bears that out. First of all, this morning, we got the personal income and spending numbers for both December and January. And the reason we got the December number in March is because we never got it earlier because of the government shutdown. So we finally got the number. And it it was a very surprising number. First of all, the personal income number was up much higher than anybody had expected. They were looking for a gain of 0.4 following a gain of 0.2 in November. And they did re- they revised November up to 0.3. But the gain in income for December was 1%, a full percentage point, which was much higher than would have been expected. But here is what really had everybody scratching their heads. It was the consumer spending number that was supposed to be down 0.3, which was, you know, a negative. Um, And instead, it was down by 0.5, which was a big drop in consumer spending. And the the previous month, though, they initially had a rise of 0.4. They they moved that up to a rise of 0.6. But the fact that you had a 1% increase in income and a half a percent decrease in spending means the savings rate really shot up. In fact, it was the biggest increase in the savings rate in five years. Uh, and um, the last time, other than that five years ago, that you had a savings rate spike up like this, it was during the financial crisis, right, during the Great Recession, last time Americans decided they needed to save some money. Now, in general, it's good, right? I like it when people are saving. We need more savings. The problem in America is a lack of savings, and real economies grow based on savings. They, they grow based on underconsumption, uh, and uh, and capital investment and underconsumption means savings means that you earn money and you don't spend it. Well, what's going on here? Because I saw listening on television a lot of these analysts like, oh, I don't believe these numbers are going to correct this. I mean, there's no way Americans are saving like this. That's not what Americans do. Uh, if they have all these extra income, they would be outspending it. People are just dismissing this. Most people expect the spending numbers to be revised up. Well, maybe the income numbers will be revised down. Maybe that's the reason that the numbers don't work. Maybe it's not that the spending number is too low. Maybe the income number is too high. Maybe Americans didn't have as much income as we're being told. But of course, one of the reasons uh, that Americans might have stopped spending in, uh, in December is because they're broke. They've already borrowed so much money to pay for the spending of the past that they're just done. Right. You know, that expression, you know, shop till you drop. Well, maybe a lot of Americans have finally dropped and they're no longer shopping. Maybe they're so broke that they have no choice but to try to repair their savings. This could be a bad sign that, you know, we've reached the end of our rope. I mean, if really the only time Americans have shown a big jump in savings was during the Great Recession, and now all of a sudden Americans are doing something that they really haven't done since the Great Recession, Maybe that tells you that the economy is not nearly as strong as people think because Americans wait until things are bad until they try to save. And of course, we don't even know that they're actually saving, right? Because all they're doing is they're looking at the difference between what Americans spend and what they earn. But the difference isn't necessarily saved. What if the difference just goes to paying back debt, 
right? I mean, I guess that's still savings because you're you're reducing your debt. So you're decreasing the amount of debt you have. It might not actually be savings because it, let's say you have no savings. Let's say you, the only thing you have is debt. And let's say you owe $1,000 and then you pay off $500 of it. And now you only owe 500. You don't have any savings. I mean, you're minus 500. So you went from minus 1,000 to minus 500. It doesn't mean that you have a lot of savings. You've just reduced the amount of negative savings that you have. And so maybe that's what Americans are doing. Maybe they're paying off debt. And if Americans are now just starting to pay off debt, this is a big journey because there's a lot of debt that still has to be paid off. Remember, I've been talking about the record delinquencies in auto loans or student loans. I mean, maybe some of the money that Americans earned in December, instead of spending it, maybe they made an old car payment that they were delinquent in, or maybe they paid off a delinquent student loan. So this is if this is the beginning, this has got a long way to go. And if you've got an economy based on consumers spending borrowed money, and now they're trying to pay back the money that they already borrowed, well, that means consumer spending is going to collapse, and there goes your bubble economy. Now, we also got the numbers for January, part of them. We didn't get everything. We got the personal income number for January, which was actually a minus sign. They were thinking that we would have up 03 uh, we ended up with down 0.1. We didn't even get the spending numbers for January. So we still don't even know what they are. I guess the government shutdown uh, impeded uh, their ability to figure out what Americans uh, spent in January. So I'm not really sure when we're going to get those numbers. But we did get some other disappointing economic numbers that came out today. We got the February ISM manufacturing number, and that was supposed to come in at 55 following 56.6 in January, and we ended up getting 54.2, so below expectations there. In fact, even uh, consumer sentiment, we had been getting some positive readings on these consumer sentiment numbers, maybe because of the rebound in the stock market. In in January, the reading was 95.5, and the expectation was that sentiment was going to improve a bit in February, I guess, along with the market. In fact, the stock market now in the the first two months of the year, because now we're in March, but in January and February, this was the strongest start to the stock market, the strongest January and February since 1987. And of course, we all know 1987 did not end well for the stock market with the October 87, you know, stock market crash. So the fact that we have something in common with 1987, the fact that the stock market is not do, is, is doing something now that it hasn't done since 1987 is not necessarily a good sign. But voters were probably not thinking about 1987 or not voters, whoever's polled in these consumer sentiment indexes. But anyway, so maybe there was an expectation that a rising stock market would increase sentiment, but it didn't. The number came in down. It came in at 93.8. And so after we got some of these negative numbers, that's when the stock market uh, originally took its first dive, but you know, it didn't go negative. At least I don't think it did. I don't re- remember seeing it negative. And and then you know the enthusiasm carried it up, and the market ended up going higher. But the enthusiasm did not you know trickle down to economists from Wall Street firms, from the New York Fed. Everybody started dropping their expectations for Q1 GDP. So the New York Fed, they do their GDP now cast. They are now looking for 
GDP growth. So less than 0.9 for Q1. And most private sector economists, uh, Goldman Sachs is now down to 0.9. So almost exactly where the uh, the New York Fed is. But the Atlanta Fed, and I talk a lot about the Atlanta Fed GDP now, they slashed their estimate, or they came out with an estimate, maybe it's their first estimate, for Q1 GDP. It's at 0.3, 0.3. I mean, that's almost zero. And as we know from past experience, the Atlanta Fed is more likely to go down than up. You know, first they come up with an overly optimistic forecast, and then they usually gradually ratchet it down uh, until we get the actual number. Well, here they're starting off with just 0.3. So that, you know, is about as low as I've seen the Atlanta Fed, you know, begin an estimate for a quarter. And of course, you know, we're already almost finished with Q1, right? We're, we're two-thirds of the way through. January and February are over. And, and so we only have one more month, and that's not a lot of data points to come out in a month of March. And, of course, it's very possible that the data that we get for March, we could be in a recession. I mean, it's possible that we're already going to print a negative GDP number for the first quarter of 2019, which would be a rather remarkable slowdown uh, from where we were in, in 2018. Now, it may uh, validate uh, the Federal Reserve, right? They'll say, oh, okay, you know, we, we're patient. We, you know, we, we, we stopped hiking rates. And now this big collapse in the GDP, this kind of validates it. But, you know, I keep listening to a lot of the, the forecasters who are still bullish on the U.S. economy. And they think the market is wrong. Right. They say, hey, the market is now pricing in a higher probability of a rate cut than a rate hike. But the market is wrong. The Fed's going to keep hiking rates. There's no way the Fed's going to do that. If they do hike rates, the market's going to crash. I mean, there's no question about that, that the market would crash. I mean, when you have people saying, well, you know, the Fed paused because the market was weak. But now that the market is strong again, well, they can resume their rate hikes. No, they can't. I mean, if they resume the rate hikes, then the market's going to resume its plunge. Now, I think it's going to go down anyway, because as I've said, just not hiking rates isn't enough. That's not going to keep the bubble from deflating. That's not going to stop the recession from coming. The Fed is going to have to cut rates back to zero. No, that's not going to work either, but they're going to try it. But you actually have these people who think, hey, now that the market has recovered, well, the Fed could resume raising rates. Of course it can't. Because the only reason the market has recovered is because nobody thinks the Fed is going to raise rates. If the Fed proves the market's wrong and raises rates anyway, then the market's going to tank. Well, then what? Is 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 um, the Fed going to come back? Is Powell going to say, oh, now we're going to be patient again? And of course, the markets won't believe them, all right? I mean, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, right? So if the Fed comes out and says, we're going to be patient, and then they hike rates anyway, well, then you know, now they can't say that again. They've already cried wolf. So, I mean, the Fed is done. There's no way they're going to be able to raise rates. They're trapped in a box. But of course, the real move is going to be when the Fed starts to cut rates. And the fact that we've already got such a meaningful slowdown in GDP from where we were last year to the first quarter of 2019 with these estimates all below, everybody is below 1% now. Nobody is looking for a GDP number uh, north of 1%. 
it's all south of 1%. So this is a major reversal. And, you know, who knows where Q2 is going to be? So Trump is under the pressure. He sees this weakening data. There's no way he's going to add a tax hike. There's no way he's going to add tariffs to a weakening economy. And he's not going to take a chance on disappointing the markets by not coming out with a trade deal. The problem, again, is they've raised the level of expectations so high for a great deal that when he can't meet those expectations, it'll be more than a sell the rumors by the fact because the, the fact will not live up to the rumor. Even if we get a deal, it's not going to be this great deal uh, that everybody is uh, claiming that's coming. Now, of course, that's not going to stop Trump from pretending it's a great deal, right? I mean, Trump is a great marketer, and no matter what deal we have, no matter how crappy the deal is, no matter how little is actually achieved as a result of the deal, he is going to be trumpeting it as if it was the greatest deal in the history of deals. Now, the question is, is the market going to buy it? I mean, obviously, the market wants to buy it. They want to pretend all the news is good so they can bid up stocks, but we'll see. Because I've been saying that this whole short-term rally, this relief rally, based on the Fed coming to the rescue and based on the prospects of winning a trade war, or at least calling off a war that we might have lost, uh, that's going to be over once a deal is actually announced, which again is a reason that maybe the Trump administration just wants to indefinitely tease about a deal and not actually deliver a deal so that the markets never get the fact to sell off on. Hopefully, maybe Trump is thinking, if we just keep the rumor alive indefinitely, well, then we can keep the rally alive indefinitely. But clearly, that's not going to work. They're going to have to come up with something. And if they don't have something in March, in fact, they, they hinted that there's a meeting, I forget the date, this month, uh, down in Mar-a-Lago, uh, the President's Club in, in, in South Florida, in Palm Beach. And so that's supposedly when the greatest deal in the history of deals is going to be signed. And so potentially, if nothing happens then, you know, that could be it. However, the biggest reaction, at least market reaction, to the prospects of this fantastic trade deal uh, with China uh, were in the foreign exchange and the gold market. We saw a nice rally in the dollar Despite all of the weak economic data that came out today, the dollar still rose based on the anticipation of a great trade deal that was going to result in this booming uh, U.S. exports, which obviously would reduce America's trade deficits, which would be good for the dollar. Although people who somehow believe that a smaller trade deficit would be good for the dollar, I mean, why aren't they dumping the dollar based on the enormity of the trade deficits now? I mean, even if we get some type of improvement in the trade deficits because of this deal, they're still going to be horrific. So if you understand that trade deficits are bad, big trade deficits are bad, then you shouldn't be buying the dollar now based on the fact that these horrific trade deficits will be slightly less horrific. Although, again, in my opinion, there is going to be no impact on the trade deficit from this trade deal. The trade deal is going to be a nothing burger. Despite what Donald Trump says, the U.S. trade deficit is going to continue to rise from record levels, including the trade deficit that we currently have with China. The only thing is going to turn around the trade deficit is going to be a collapsing dollar. 
Now, initially, as the dollar falls in value, that's going to worsen the trade deficit because it's going to make our imports more expensive and we're going to get less for our exports. But at some point, the dollar's decline will be sufficiently large that it's going to price Americans out of the market. Americans are just not going to be able to afford to buy stuff with their you know, greatly depreciated dollars. The other big move was in the gold market. Gold was down about $24 today. We closed well below $1,300 again. $1,293, I believe, is where we went out. And gold, I think, sold off based on the perception that people were buying gold because they were worried about all the uncertainty surrounding the potential trade war. And now that a deal is all but certain and about to be wrapped up and it's a great deal, well, people sold gold because, okay, you know, if you bought gold because you were worried about a trade war and the negative ramifications or you bought gold because of the uncertainty over whether there would be a trade war. But now that you're that you don't have that uncertainty anymore, that that time bomb has been diffused, it's not going to go off, then maybe you sold gold based on on this news. Well, first of all, Anybody who's really buying gold and understands why they should be buying gold, they're not buying gold because of the trade war. They're buying gold because of their dollar, because of the Fed, because of the fact that the Fed is going to continue to print money, that they're going to do more quantitative easing, they're going to go back to zero. And in fact, the news that came out today that caused all these uh, uh, you know, private banks and uh, Federal Reserves to slash their growth forecast for GDP, all of that is bullish for gold because a weaker economy means bigger deficits. It means more money printing. It means more inflation. So everything that's actually happening is bullish for gold. So anybody who is selling gold because they believe that people bought gold only based on the uncertainty surrounding a trade war and that now that the uncertainty is gone, there's no reason to own gold, don't understand gold. So if anything, maybe we took out some stops, maybe some of the people who on the speculative side who got into the gold futures market, maybe with some tight stops, uh, they thought, oh, the chart was looking like a breakout. Maybe they had some charts, you know, below 1300 or something like that. We ran those stops based on, you know, this manufactured uh, idea that a resolution of the trade war is bad for gold. It is good for gold. And especially since people are believing that this is such a great deal for the U.S. economy, maybe that's part of the reason, too, that they sold gold is this is going to be great for the U.S. economy. So it's going to be great for the dollar. It's going to be great for the stock market. And so, therefore, it's negative for gold if you're buying gold as a hedge against a weak uh, stock market or a weak economy. But since nothing is going to come of this deal, uh, this is a buying opportunity again in in gold uh, moving back below 1300. I don't expect gold to stay below uh, 1300 for long. In fact, my expectation it'll be back above uh, above that number next week. So this is a good buying opportunity. And I do believe, again, we're going to get a trade deal soon. And then it's going to be buy the rumor, sell the fact. And as traders are selling stocks, uh, they're going to be buying gold. By the way, speaking about President Trump, he seems to be the hero of CPAC, right, which is the Conservative Political Action Committee's annual meeting there in Washington. And for a time, I was going to CPAC. Back in the day where I was doing the Peter Schiff radio show, I was going to CPAC and I would have like a booth there on Radio Row and I would do some interviews with some of the politicians that were there. And, you know, I never actually spoke there. No, one time, I take that back. I was on one panel one time in CPAC. I wasn't a featured speaker 
but I did get a slot on a panel, and I can't even remember what the panel was about. Uh, but that was the only time I've even been invited to speak at CPAC. And, and some of the years that I was there, uh, Ron Paul was very popular, right? He was kind of winning these straw polls. And uh, CPAC, there was a pretty strong libertarian contingency there, but obviously in the minority, right? But, you know, they, they, were, they were younger, younger guys, um, and they were coming down to CPAC. But it's supposed to be conservatives, right? And I'm getting a lot of the coverage from CPAC, and it seems like Donald Trump is turning out to be this conservative hero uh, of CPAC. In fact, I was listening to some of the clips, and one woman was saying, this is a woman that was just being interviewed, oh, Trump is great, he's the most conservative president in my lifetime, and I'm like 65 years old. And one of the speakers said that, um, Donald Trump is the most conservative president since Reagan. Maybe he's even the most conservative president ever, right, in the history of the country. Now, I mean, what does conservative mean? I mean, I don't know what conservative means to the people who are going to CPAC today. But if you want to take, you know, a look at the, his traditional uh, meaning of conservative, right, Barry Goldwater right? The conscience of a conservative. If you want to, you know, look at what Barry Goldwater and then Ronald Reagan, who really was a protege of, of Barry Goldwater, right? And, and maybe was even more conservative than Barry Goldwater. But if you want to go back to what Reagan was advocating and what, uh, what uh, Goldwater were advocating, Trump is not a conservative. And right? I mean, A, they were not about protectionism. They were not about tariffs. Um, they were not about, you know, cracking down on uh, immigrants coming into the United States. And they certainly were not about massively increasing the size of government. I mean, that's what Trump has presided over is a big increase in government. I mean, what's conservative about that? I mean, unless you're saying you want to conserve big government, but conservatives in general, it's a fiscal conservative. It's we want government to spend less. We want to balance the budget. Now, of course, you could argue, well, the budget's deficits went up under Ronald Reagan, which is true, but he he campaigned in favor of a balanced budget. He was going to balance the budget, and Reagan initially cut a deal with Tip O'Neill in Congress that for you know they were going to get three dollars of spending cuts for every dollar of tax hikes. I mean, so um, Reagan did try to reduce government spending. And when he campaigned, I mean, he did talk about getting rid of certain government agencies and departments. But of course, once he got elected, he found that it was very difficult to do that, given the constituencies that these agencies and departments had uh, in Washington. So he wasn't able to deliver on that promise to really make government smaller. But he wanted to make government smaller. I mean, he would have if he could. Uh, but Donald Trump doesn't seem to have any desire to make government smaller. I mean, sometimes he talks about it, but he doesn't actually do anything. I mean, the only thing he fought for, the only thing he was willing to shut the government down for was to force Congress to spend more money than they were otherwise going to spend. He wanted the government to spend additional money on the wall. He didn't try to shut the government down to force Congress to spend less on anything. He didn't care about that. He wants to spend more on everything. You know, and look at the size of the deficits under Trump. I mean, you can't say Trump is a fiscal conservative. I mean, I mean, he, he we've got the biggest deficits in our history under Trump, and not just the biggest budget deficits. We have the biggest trade deficits. We have record budget deficits, and we have record trade deficits under Donald Trump. 
How is that conservative? Has Donald Trump done anything to tackle the entitlement problem? No. These things are on autopilot. He talk, He doesn't even talk about it. In fact, to the extent that he ever mentions Social Security or Medicare, it's just to reassure everybody that he's never going to cut anything. I mean, what is conservative about promising to allow government spending to increase and you're going to do nothing about it? So Trump is not a conservative at all, unless, of course, you're talking about conserving uh, the status quo, conserving big government, conserving the swamp, right? I mean, if he was really a conservative, he would be draining the swamp, not conserving it, right? But that's really what he's doing. But the problem is, again, you have so many people on the right who have embraced Donald Trump because they're basically building into Trump everything that they want him to be, everything that they wish he was, right? But he's not, right? And what's allowing them to pretend this is because we're all pretending that we have a booming economy. And we want to say the reason we have a booming economy is because we have a conservative president, right? Because we have a Republican president who believes in capitalism, who believes in the free market, right? Who's not a socialist, right? Because we have a president who's cutting regulations, right? And lowering taxes. That's why we have the greatest economy ever, because we're doing all the things that the conservatives want to do. And therefore we have the greatest economy ever. But both of those things are wrong because A, Trump is not doing all the things that we want a conservative president to do. And the economy is not booming. Both of those things are wrong. And both of those fantasies are going to come back to bite the Republicans when they blow apart. Because when the recession emerges, and now we are deep in a recession, right? Unemployment is spiking. The stock market is going down. Now what are the Republicans going to say? You're going to blame that on the Democrats? You're going to blame that on socialists? You can't because you already said Trump's the greatest president ever. Trump's the most conservative president ever. We have the greatest economy ever. And now it blows up. You own that. How are you going to argue that it's the fault of socialism or big government or big deficits when those are your big deficits? Those are your big government. And you said that it was deregulation and tax cuts. You claim credit for all this stuff that wasn't done. Yes, Donald Trump lowered some taxes, but he made government more expensive. So we decided to pay for government by borrowing money and printing money rather than taxing money, which again, as I explained in the previous podcast, taxation is the most efficient way to pay for government and the least costly way. It's much worse. Donald Trump's way of paying for big government is worse uh, than Barack Obama's way for paying for big government because Barack Obama paid for more of his big government through taxation, whereas Donald Trump wants to pay for his even bigger government through more borrowing, through more debt, which simply obligates American taxpayers to pay even higher taxes in the future, not only to pay for the spending they didn't pay for in the past, but for all the additional interest that now is part of the bill because of the borrowing. But it's going to be worse. Because by taking ownership of this economy and saying it's all because of conservative principles and tax cutting and deregulation, when it all collapses, it is going to be that much easier for the Democrats to say, we told you so, right? Because, hey, we had a conservative president, George Bush, who wasn't conservative at all, but hey, we had George Bush who cut taxes on the rich, 
right, which he did, right? And he ran up the deficits, which he did, right, because they could say he inherited a surplus from Clinton. And so we had a Republican who cut taxes for the rich, and those tax cuts gave us big deficits. And then we had all the greedy capitalists and not enough regulation. And then we had a financial crisis and a great recession. And who saved us but Barack Obama? He saved us. He created a recovery by raising taxes on the rich, bringing back more regulation by passing Obamacare. He made government bigger and he saved the economy. And then what happened? Donald Trump took over and wrecked it all over again. He undid all the good things that Obama did. He went back to the failed policies of Bush, only bigger, only more tax cuts for the rich, only more deregulation. And now he created an even bigger crisis. And this is going to be a perfect uh, you know, campaign slogan, rallying cry uh, for the Democrats to win. And it couldn't come at a worse time politically. As I said, when you've got the rise of popularity of socialism, among the Democrats. And now you're going to hand them this gift. You're going to hand the socialists the gift of this massive recession starting on the watch of the Republicans while they're claiming we have the most conservative president. This is the most capitalistic president. This is the most free markets. We have everything we want and we have a great economy and we should just sit back and be thankful. And then the whole thing falls apart. That is perfect to say, you know what? We tried it their way. We had the most conservative president with tax cuts and deregulation. And look at the result. Another massive recession, a big spike in unemployment, debt is off the charts. The economy is a mess. We tried that. It didn't work. Now we need to try something different. Now we need to try socialism. Right. And of course, the average American voter is going to have no clue that socialism doesn't work. I mean, they don't know anything about history. Right. And, and so they're just going to assume, well, capitalism didn't work. Right. Because we know that because we just tried that and it was a complete failure. Right. And so let's try something different. So this is the danger. Right. All this. Be careful what you wish for. Everybody who is reveling in the success of the Trump administration, you're not reveling in anything. The Trump administration is no more successful than the Bush administration. The Bush uh, uh, economy was a bubble. It was a lie. And I was saying the same exact thing during the Bush presidency, saying that it was going to end badly. Right. All of the stuff you go back to the Peter Schiff was right videos. And when I was on television all the time, it was when I was very critical of my fellow Republicans or fellow conservatives who were on television championing the Bush economy, including Larry Kudlow, the greatest story ever told, right? The Goldilocks economy, right? How how great everything was under, under Bush. People didn't appreciate how great this economy was. And I kept saying, Larry, you're wrong. It's not great. It's a bubble. The Fed has created this. Look at what's happening in housing. Look at what's happening in debt. This is going to end a disaster. And it did. And it paved the way for Barack Obama. Look, it didn't matter who the Democrats nominated in 2008. He was going to beat anybody that the Republicans nominated because the Republicans got the blame for the crisis. Well, the same thing is going to happen in 2020. It doesn't matter who the uh, Republicans nominate, even if it's sitting President Donald Trump. And it doesn't matter who the Democrats nominate, even if it's a socialist, even if it's Bernie Sanders. Right? Because if we are in a bad recession, if it's a bear market in stocks, Trump and the Republicans are going to get the blame. And no matter how much uh, Americans don't like socialism, they're going to vote for it anyway, 
when they think the alternative is uh, you know, complete disaster because that's what the economy is going to look like, right? And it's going to look like it's going to get much, much worse because the people who are in power are the ones that said everything was great, right? And this is what is so dangerous. The only people now who are talking about that the economy is not good, the only people doing that are the socialists. They're the only ones that are pointing out the problems. The Republicans, the conservatives are saying there are no problems. Everything is great. And so when it turns out that the Republicans are wrong, right, the socialists are going to be the ones that look right. Now, they're right for the wrong reasons. I mean, they're, they, they couldn't be more wrong about why we have problems in the economy. They are, they, they're 180 degrees wrong. Everything they think about why we have problems is wrong. I mean, sometimes, you know, oh, we spend too much money on the military. And I would, you know, you can give them that and they, they can be against corporate welfare. And yeah, I'd be against that too. But apart from a couple of things, almost all their points are wrong. They have no idea, you know, why the economy is bad. And so since they're right for the wrong reasons, their solutions are not going to work. Their solutions are going to make everything worse, right? So they're saying, hey, the economy is really bad. So elect us. They're not going to fix it. They're going to make it much worse. What are they going to do to make the economy worse? They're going to grow government. The problem with the economy is government is already too big. The problem with the economy is the government has already borrowed too much money. The problem with the economy is there's already too many rules and regulations screwing up the economy. There's already too much government interference in the market. The government is subsidizing things it shouldn't subsidize and taxing things it shouldn't tax. Right? The whole economy is messed up because of government. If we had a free market economy, it wouldn't be messed up. It would be working beautifully. But the fact that it's not is because we don't have a free market. But that's what the Democrats don't get. Now, the problem is the Republicans don't get it either because they always want to claim credit for how great the economy is doing, even though it's not free, even though it's a bubble, just because they're in power. And they want to pretend that if they're in power, everything is great so they can get reelected and stay in power. But the problem is that lie doesn't work when everything blows up, right? And now you get the blame. So now all the... The, the Democrats are going to do when they get control and they think the reason the economy is screwed up is because of too much greed and too much capitalism, right? So what they're going to do is say, oh, government, we're going to have government provide this, government provide that. So government's going to provide education, government's going to provide health care, government's going to provide employment, government's going to do all these things to micromanage the economy, right? And this is going to be the final straw, right? This is going to be deficits just going off the charts. And, you know, when I'm listening to some of the people now who are criticizing, you know, MMT, modern monetary theory, I talked about that on the last podcast, trying to say, hey, you know, this is crazy town. Uh, If we just print all this money, you know, that's going to go to hyperinflation. See, that's the same thing that we're already going to have anyway, based on quantitative easing. See, a lot of people are now making the same points to criticize, uh, big deficits to fund the the, the Green New Deal that I was making when we printed all this money to fund QE1, QE2, QE3. I mean, it's the same dynamics at play. It's just, you know, all the Democrats are talking about doing is QE on a bigger scale, right? They want to do even more of it. Well, if you think QE is great, if you think four and a half trillion worth of QE is great, well, why isn't 10 trillion of it even better or 20 trillion? See, none of it was good. I've been consistent. I was against 
the government doing a quantitative easing when the Republicans wanted to do it. I was against it when when uh, um, Obama wanted to do it, and I'm against it when the socialists want to do it, and I'm against it if they want to call it modern monetary theory or just you know quantitative easing. I'm against the concept of the government printing money and buying government debt. It's wrong. But now you have people who have defended quantitative easing saying, well, we don't want to go that far because that could lead to hyperinflation. What we've already done could lead to hyperinflation. In fact, it will lead to hyperinflation if we don't undo it because we're going to have to be at a point or the Fed's going to get to a point where in order to prevent hyperinflation, they're going to have to allow interest rates to skyrocket. They're going to have to allow the government to default on its debts. They're going to have to allow a horrific recession to run its course and do nothing about it. That's the only way they're going to be able to stop runaway inflation. If they don't do that, if they give in to the political temptation or the pressure and they do monetize everything, I mean, the debts are going to be off the chart, even if we don't do the Green New Deal. I mean, think about it now. I mentioned that the national debt was up almost $1.3 trillion last year, and the economy wasn't even in a recession. So if we go into a recession now, where's the debt going to be? Two to $3 trillion a year. So how much quantitative easing are they going to have to do to finance those type of deficit spendings? And if we have to do that for a few years, and then we take the national debt up from $22 trillion to $30 or $40 trillion, how could the Federal Reserve ever allow interest rates to rise? I mean, if we couldn't handle more than two and a quarter percent interest when the national debt was $20 trillion, how are we going to handle it when it's $40 trillion? And imagine if we had to do another massive round of quantitative easing to monetize record budget deficits, how much more debt would corporate America take on? How much more debt would uh, the state governments take on? How much more credit card debt would we have? How much more pseudo loans or auto loans, right? I mean, this thing would be off the charts. So we've already done, we've already created enough money to cause the type of hyperinflation that now people are worried is going to be caused by the Green New Deal based on the path that we're already on. And the only way we're going to be able to avoid it is if the Federal Reserve actually does the right thing. And I see no indication that they will because, look, um, a lot of people were, were hopeful that Jerome Powell was going to do the right thing, right? That he would just, that he would keep raising interest rates and shrink the balance sheet despite uh, what might happen on Wall Street. And everybody believed that as long as the stock market was going up. But as soon as the stock market went down, he caved. I mean, if he maybe he was bluffing. Maybe Powell was just pretending that he was going to, you know, be, you know, a, a hawk, that he was going to just do what was right and, you know, uh, the markets be damned, politics be damned. But as soon as he was, you know, pressured, as soon as he was actually staring at the face of a bear market, right, as soon as you had a lot of people on Wall Street angry at him, he quickly caved and went the other way and called off the rate hikes. You know, I was listening to this podcast. I do this podcast once in a while, Quote the Raven. I've done it a couple of times. And I got a, you know, I, I got a, a couple of emails. People say, hey, you should listen to the last podcast because Guy Adami is on there and your name comes up a lot. And, and, and Guy uh, was talking about me, uh, you know, quite a bit on the show. So I listened to the podcast and, you know, it's interesting because one of the things that Guy said was that, he is against what the Federal Reserve is doing. He is, um, you know, he thinks Bernanke will go down in history as maybe one of the biggest villains of the 21st century. 
And, you know, not to let Greenspan off the hook. But, yes, I agree. Bernanke did a horrible job. Everybody thinks he saved us, and he didn't. He basically condemned us. He made a deal with the devil, and the devil's going to collect, right? Um, But what he said is that he would have liked Powell to have continued to raise interest rates and continue to shrink the balance sheet, uh, even though it might be bad for the markets, but he said it would be good for the economy. And I get the the you know the opinion I'm of the opinion that um, Guy Adami believed it would be good for the economy in the here and now. Like, hey, this would be good for our economy if the Fed did that. He's right, but he's wrong. It's good for the economy in the long run. In the short run, it's a disaster, especially if you're talking about the bubble economy, which we now have. Right, we are living in a bubble, and if the Fed pricks the bubble, right, that is good to prick a bubble. Because then you stop making the bubble bigger. Because if the bubble doesn't prick, it gets bigger. And the bigger it gets, the worse it's going to be when it eventually pops. So why not prick it before it gets even bigger, right? So if the Fed were to prick the bubble, that would be good in the long run. But it would be horrible if you're measuring the economy by GDP. Because that's all part of the bubble. So I think what Guy Dami didn't get is if uh, the Fed did the right thing for the economy, it would mean a massive recession in the short run. And it would mean a lot of people on on Main Street would lose money, too. They'd lose their jobs. I mean, a lot of bad things would happen if the Fed did the right thing. I mean, he seemed to be of the opinion that if the Fed did the right thing, it would just be great for the economy, but it would be bad for the stock market. No, it would be bad for both in the short run, especially when so much of our economy depends on asset bubbles like the stock market, like the real estate market. That's one of the reasons that the Federal Reserve doesn't want to do the right thing. It's not just the market. It's the entire bubble economy that's built on the foundation of asset wealth. That is not just stock prices, but real estate prices, because if the Fed kept raising interest rates and kept shrinking its balance sheet, or if it keeps shrinking its balance sheet, then it's going to collapse real estate prices, which for a lot of Americans would be an even bigger deal than collapsing stock prices. But, you know, another point that, that Guy Adami made, and at least I could thank him because he did say some nice things about me. He said some things that some were critical of me, which is fine. But he said that he liked me, and he actually said that he thinks in the long run I'm going to be right. Well, I mean, if I'm going to be right in the long run, then I'm right now. I mean, that's the point, right? I mean, if somebody is right in the short run but wrong in the long run, well, then they're wrong, right? right? I mean, so being right in the long run is when it counts, right? The long one is, is, is you know, is, is what's important. Now, if you're a day trader, maybe not, right? Or if you're a politician, who cares about the long run? The long run is your term. But if you care about this country, if you care about America, if you're trying to, you know, look at, you know, what's actually going to happen, then it's important to be right in the long run. What good is it to be right in the short run if everything you were right about turns out to be wrong, right? If everything that you thought you were right about in the long run, you find out that you were wrong about everything, then what good was it that you were right in the short run? You weren't right. You were wrong. It just took you until the long run to find out that you were wrong. So if I am wrong in the short run, but I'm actually right, then I'm not wrong in the short run. It's just that in the short run, people don't know that I'm that I'm right. They just think that I'm wrong because the long run hasn't arrived, right? So, but he thinks that I'll be right in the long run, which means he thinks I'm right. But uh, he just doesn't know how long it's going to take before I am I'm proven right. But he was kind of trying to, um, you know, explain why I'm not on CNBC anymore. And it's been two years. The last time I was on CNBC was on his show, uh, you know, because Fast Money was kind of the last 
holdout on CNBC that still had me on. I mean, I used to be on all different shows, and one by one, they stopped inviting me until eventually uh, Fast Money was the last one. I think it'll be two years two years uh, in April. I think April of 2017 was the last time I was on CNBC. Oh, and by the way, shortly after I stopped being on CNBC uh, US, uh, they basically stopped calling me to be on CNBC Europe and CNBC Asia. Because as you know, CNBC America was kind of you know tapering off of using me, I did get a lot of calls. I, I used to do CNBC Europe and CNBC uh, Asia a lot. You know, So as I started doing less CNBC in, in America, I started doing more CNBC International. And, and then they cut me off. And then they stopped inviting me. So I have, who knows, I mean, it's been about the same amount of time. I haven't been on any of the CNBC International affiliates. So they obviously circulated some kind of a, a memo. Now, Adami said that, you know, I haven't been banned from CNBC. Well, I don't know how he knows I haven't been banned. I mean, I haven't been invited on. My guess is it's probably some type of a ban. But he tried to say that the reason I'm not on CNBC anymore is because I'm not good television, that I'm abrasive and it's not good for ratings, which I think is a complete crock. I mean, A, I don't really think I'm abrasive. I think there have been occasions where I may have been abrasive, but only in response to other people who were abrasive against me, especially on his show. You know, I would come on Fast Money and they'd immediately have three or four guys attacking me. And sometimes they'd have guys attacking my character, right? You know, just saying, I don't even believe what I'm saying. Just accusing me of being dishonest, trying to sell gold. And in fact, you know, Guy also said, you know, Peter, he always likes to talk about the same thing. Well, they only invited me on to talk about gold. I mean, that's when they would have me on. I mean, I could talk about all sorts of things, right? I mean, you listen to my podcast. I mean, I, there's not just one thing I can talk about. But usually when, when his show would have me on, they would have me on specifically to talk about that same thing every time. You know, so obviously I talked about what they wanted me to talk about when they invited me on the program. But A, to say that, you know, people, I'm not good for television. I mean, you know, you know what's not good for television? What CNBC has been doing. I mean, that's why their ratings are at like record lows. I mean, CNBC's ratings have been plunging. Now, there are different reasons for that. But one of the reasons is because all they have is a parade of bulls cheerleading the economy. That's what's bad for television. That's boring. Having me on or people like me, that's exciting. That's interesting to have some kind of debate, to have somebody on there that disagrees with everybody else. I mean, look, I remember back in the day when I used to be on CNBC a lot, people used to even stop me on the streets. Like in New York, they would recognize me because I was on a lot. And they would say, oh, Peter Schiff, hey, I, I'm a big fan of yours. You know, whenever I see you on CNBC, I turn up the volume. Meaning that, you know, the volume isn't on. I mean, they have the TV on. In fact, a lot of their ratings aren't even real because people may be watching CNBC, but they're not listening to it. They just have it on. Maybe they can look at the ticker, right? So people would say, you know, when I see you, I actually turn on the volume because I know you're, you're going to say something that I think is interesting and I want to hear it. And the, the producers and the talent, the, uh, the, the hosts used to tell me, hey, Last time we were on, we got so much fan mail. We get all this fan mail. They don't get fan mail for other guests. They were getting fan mail from me. So Guy Adami saying, I'm not good for TV. I'm great for TV. In fact, when a lot of these shows, you know, were starting to have their internet, right, when CNBC was starting to do CNBC online and even with Fox, the producers used to call me to try to get me on because they said, you know, we want to get you on because whenever we have you, we get a lot more hits, we get a lot more traffic. I mean, sometimes when they were doing 
um, you know, ratings week or something, they would try to book me because they knew that having me on would, would get them more ratings. I mean, I know that I'm good television because people either love me or hate me. There's not that many people that are indifferent, at least if they know me, right? If they've never heard of me, then they don't have an opinion. But anybody who knows me, they either love me or they hate me, which is good for television because people like to watch people that they hate, right? Because, you know, just like they like to watch people that they love, right? If they're indifferent, if people are boring, that's when you don't have an audience. But if you're controversial, if you have people that really like you and people that really despise you, when you're on, they're going to listen to you. They want to hear what you could say so they can cheer you or so they can boo you, right? Because the people that hate me want to see somebody else, you know, make a fool of me or, or, you know, or beat me in a debate. And the people who like me want to see me make fools of other people. So I know I'm good television, right? And it's not just because I have an ego, because I've been told for years when I used to be on that I was good TV, I was good for ratings. Now Guy Odami is saying, oh, Peter Schiff's not on because he's bad for ratings. He's bad TV. That is crazy. Right now, he did say, look, people don't like to hear uh, the bad stuff. They don't like to hear uh, that things are going to get bad. Well, you know who doesn't like to hear that? Probably the advertisers who are advertising financial products that depend on a bull market. Probably all of the other people that come on the network, all the other guests and the network itself. Right. The reason that CNBC wants a bull market is because they want people to watch. Right. So they they think that by constantly touting how great everything is, more people will be in the stock market and therefore more people will watch CNBC. You know, when CNBC had its highest ratings was during the dot com bubble. Right. Everybody was watching CNBC because everybody had stocks. I remember I used to tell this story uh, back in the late 1990s. One of the you know, one of the signs of the the top of the market, uh, probably 1999, 2000, whenever it was, I was in an airport and. You know, there was a television set in, you know, at the gate where you're waiting for the planes and the television set had CNBC on it and standing around the, the television. There was a crowd of, of, of airport workers, you know, like, uh, you know, ticket takers, baggage handlers, right? All these guys, they're all standing around staring up at the TV watching CNBC. Right. All these guys are in the market. The guys that, you know, handle the bags and these, you know, are, are, are in the stock market. Right. All these little people are you know, at the top of the market. Right. But they're all watching CNBC because they got conned into the stock market bubble. And then that bubble popped and, and CNBC's audience started going downhill. But I think one of the reasons that CNBC's ratings are as low as they are is because they don't have me on and people like me on. Right. Uh, they just have the same type of boring, bullish guests who say the same thing over and over again. Just you change the name of the of, of the guy. Right. And, and, and that's the problem. And, you know, they do have. Um, David Stockman on once, you know, I see him on. He's like the new Peter Schiff in that he's the only guy that I actually see routinely on CNBC, on Fox, on CNN that is saying, a lot of the things that I say and a lot of the things that I would be saying if I was still allowed on and I'm not saying, now, of course, he doesn't say everything that I say. I mean, he's not, he doesn't get the whole picture right. I mean, I, there are some things that he gets wrong, but overall, I mean, 90% of what he says is correct, right? And he's probably uh, the most honest guy who's the closest to being accurate, who's on television with any kind of regularity. And the question is, well, why do they have David Stockman on to say negative things and not Peter Schiff? Well, I mean, there are a couple of reasons that you could say that. One, 
David Stockman is newer flavor, right? David Stockman was not on CNBC or Fox or CNN in 2004, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, like I was, you know, saying all this gloom and doom stuff. He's only been gloom and doom for a few years. So maybe he's a fresh face. You know, with me, uh, Peter, you've been saying this for 10 years. So, you know, Stockman's only been saying it for a couple of years. So maybe that's part of it. Another part of it could be that, well, you know, he is David Stockman. He worked in the Reagan White House. So he has the street credibility that I don't have as far as being part of government, right? Having been the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, so he has uh, that bit of a credibility. But I think the real reason that, uh, let's CNBC, for example, likes to have Stockman on is because he's not from the financial industry. So he is not going on CNBC really talking about an alternative investment strategy uh, to uh, investing in the U.S. I mean, so he's he's not reigning on that parade, even though he's bearish on the stock market. And he's ve- he's more bearish than I am, actually, on the stock market, because I believe that inflation will prevent the stock price market from collapsing as much as he believes it's going to collapse. So he's actually more bearish on the stock market, but he's not from an investment firm. So I think it's easier for them to kind of dismiss him uh, and, and because he's, you know, he's not managing money. He's not associated with a broker dealer. So they're not bringing somebody on who's maybe giving investment advice that's contrary to what everybody else is saying. Whereas I, I am affiliated with a broker dealer. I am an asset manager. I am in the same business as all these other guys who are, are bullish. And so maybe they just don't want somebody from the investment industry Right, coming on and being so negative on the U.S. market, on the U.S. dollar, and the U.S. economy. Right, maybe that 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 could be uh, the reason. But anyway, it was an interesting podcast. Uh, if you want to listen to it, you know, again, quote the Raven. It's the most recent episode. In fact, I might be on it again. Uh, I'm sure I will. In fact, to discuss uh, to discuss the points that um, that that guy made specifically with his audience. But I have a feeling that a lot of the people that listen to that podcast. I'll also listen to the Peter Schiff show.